0: Would you uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 17? Jeremiah 17, it contains probably one of the most famous verses in Jeremiah. But before we get there, I just want to read for us two verses from Jeremiah 17, and that is verses 7 and 8. Hear now God's word. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that Jeremiah was very dependent on the prophet Hosea. He spent a lot of time there. He spent a lot of time reading and studying the prophet. And so this morning when we pray Hosea 6.3 for our time, we're really praying a well-worn page in Jeremiah's Bible. This is what we ask. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers as the spring rains which water the earth. Jesus, would your coming to us this morning be as sure as the dawn? Will you meet us like the showers and like springs of rain? And would you do it because you're well-pleased to do it, because you're satisfied to do it, because you gain glory when you do it? We ask that you would do that in our midst this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I was eager to get to the very next verse in this passage. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's a punchy line in Jeremiah, and I can't wait to get to that line. But as I kind of mulled over it, I had this half-baked sermon for us this morning, and I just threw the thing out. I couldn't couldn't do it. I I pitched it. I'm going to put it back in the oven this week. We're going to see what we serve up next week. Instead of that, I want to spend today talking about suffering. I've heard some really heavy stories in our church and in our city in this past month and in these past weeks. We are a body who suffers. On Friday, it was a beautiful day. I took my daughter and some of her friends down to the river. We were going to raft on the river. And as we're getting situated and ready to jump in, a man comes to us and he says, my son escaped from rehab. I don't know where he is. He's a danger to himself. Would you just keep an eye out for him on the river? And all of a sudden, I realize this man is spending all day driving to look for his son. I've texted him every day since that, and I haven't heard back from him. That's deep, deep suffering. There's pain in our city, and there's pain in this church. There are stories that from where we sit this morning, literally today, this morning, we cannot possibly see the end of this thing. We suffer, and we're going to suffer There's not a thing we can do about it today or tomorrow or the next day to fix it, to avoid it, to run from it, to solve it. There is no fast forward button in our suffering. We have to sit in our pain and we're going to be here for a while. And in some cases, we're going to be here for a really long while. What do you do with that? Where do you go with that when you suffer And you cannot move your story of suffering forward one inch today. Where do you go with that? There is something here in Jeremiah 17 for us if we will be patient to see it. We're going to camp out here and see what the prophet says. When I read this passage, these two verses in Jeremiah 17, did you notice How much Jeremiah 17 sounds like Psalm 1? I'm going to read the two of them side by side in just a few moments, so you'll get to see that for yourself, but the thoughts in those two chapters are almost identical. It's almost like somebody's looking over somebody's shoulder and lifting some material from a different Bible book. Now, how does that happen? How do you get in a situation where you've got almost identical verses in our Bibles? I think we often forget that Bible writers are also Bible readers. We kind of make the mistake of how inspiration happens, that these men, they just kind of walk around in a trance-like state, and God speaks through them like he would speak through an intercom, right? They just kind of announce exactly what God is flowing through them, and it is truly inspired words, but the people writing our Bibles are people who are reading their Bibles, They study this word, they dedicate themselves to this word, this word shapes them and who they are and what they say. Jeremiah, he's reading the Psalms and he's reading Hosea. We're going to find out that Daniel and Jesus, they're actually reading the book of Jeremiah. The Apostle Peter is going to tell us, I am banging my head against the Apostle Paul and trying to understand the things that he has written to us. And when we studied the book of Hebrews, we could only surmise that that author must have straight up slept with his Old Testament scroll. It's everywhere in every page of what he writes. Inspired Bible writers, they turn to their Bibles again and again, for lack of a better word, for inspiration, to understand and know the Lord themselves as then they, empowered by the Holy Spirit, write divine words to us. Jeremiah spent a lot of time with Psalm 1. He probably memorized it, He probably meditated on it. He probably pulled it out in different situations in his life to try it on for size. He probably spent a lot of time with Psalm 1. And so whether we suffer this morning or not, we could do worse than Bible writers who are Bible readers. We too come to this book because this book has words of life. Now let's get back to the point of Jeremiah 17 and Psalm 1 and how closely related they are. Listen to this. I want to read from Psalm 1 to refresh our memory. This is the first psalm in the psalm book. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And then the psalmist says this, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Jeremiah 17, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots to the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. You see the connection between those two? Both, they're contrasting in their chapter the life of the person who doesn't put their trust in the Lord versus the life of the person who does put their trust in the Lord. And today, this morning, I want to focus on the person of faith. I want to examine the life of a born-again believer, someone who has cast her allegiance with Jesus and she is banking for her life on him. That's the person I want to see in Jeremiah 17. I see four major similarities between Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17. Let's look at those each in turn. There's four of them that I see. Both chapters describe the person of faith as a tree. Now, if you reject God, if you turn from God, if you run from God, you're described in those chapters not as a tree, but as a shrub or as chaff. You're fragile, you're fleeting, you're subject to the breeze and to the drought, but that is not so with a Christian. A Christian is a tree. We might feel shrub like most of the time, but make no mistake, a believer is a tree. Isaiah sixty one three has one of my favorite metaphors for a Christian. They may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Oaks of righteousness. We're not talking about crepe myrtles, people. We're talking about... Oaks, a believer is an oak of righteousness. There is weight and substance and stability and significance to a person who is in Christ because there is weight and substance and significance and stability to the person of Christ himself. Whatever words you're going to take to describe Jesus get turned back on you in blessing because you as a believer are found in Jesus. You are united to him and the descriptions he holds, he imparts on you and you as a benefit stand as a tree. The psalmist and Jeremiah, they completely agree on that point and they share it with Isaiah. Isaiah. Number two, both talk about this tree's water supply. When they talk about the water supply, neither author is talking about the bare minimum amount of water a tree needs to get by. Neither author is talking about broken cisterns that may or may not have water when we most need it. Neither author is talking about putrid, stagnant cesspools of water. A person of faith is a tree who is planted next to streams of fresh, living, bountiful, beautiful, never ending, soul satisfying, thirst quenching water. God, in His kindness, He does not withhold a single drop of water. Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman. He was trying to explain what a life of faith was going to look like, what it might mean to bank her life on him, to pledge her allegiance to him as Savior and Lord. And he was saying to her, the only way I could think to describe the Christian life to you is this. You're never going to be thirsty again. You're not going to be thirsty. You trust in me. You follow me. You have everything you need to quench the thirst inside of your soul. You will not be thirsty again. Julie and I went backpacking recently, and we were trekking through the woods. We were carrying our packs. We ran out of water, and so we were kind of just keeping our eyes out for a water source, and we finally stumbled on one. It was like this pencil-thin dribble of water And it was flowing like through these leaves and muck. And it was kind of sandy, but it was all we had to work with. And we had a filter. And so I get down on my hands and knees and I kind of move the leaves away. And I stick the the water bottle under the dribble. And it takes about 10 minutes to fill something and then to crank it out and filter the water and get it clean. And then I do it for Julie. And we kind of fill up our packs and pack them and start walking again. And not two minutes from the dribble of water, we run smack into a river, like a raging, cold, crisp river. It's flowing so hard we can't even cross the thing. It's incredible. And I wonder how much of a metaphor that is for the Christian life. We're like digging around thinking that this might perhaps be the providence of God that I need at this moment and if I can move some silt and some leaves and get it, I'll give it to God's credit because maybe that's what he was trying to do and not two minutes down the road there is a river that has more water than you could possibly drink. Christian, you are a tree and you are planted by streams of water. Number three, and this will be the hardest one to believe of the four, both chapters describe this tree's location not as random, not as coincidental, but planted. Both writers go out of their way to use the same Hebrew word and say that this tree is planted. There's intentionality there. This tree has been placed exactly where it is intended to grow. It's not too close to the stream where it's going to start to be eroded. It's not too far back from the stream where it's going to get thirsty It's not planted 50 feet up the bank where all the tree's Instagrams look happy and healthy and wholesome. And it must be easy to be a tree where they are because they get the water first and I'm getting it 50 feet later. But that tree is also not 50 feet down the bank in places of grinding, global, war-torn poverty where it would be a miracle for any faith to exist at all. And since we're talking about trees and we're not talking about flowers, there's not a lot of opportunity to be replanted somewhere else in either direction. Like a different life a different family, a different set of circumstances, a different personality, a different gift mix. And because I'm a tree and I'm stuck where I am and I don't have those things, there's not a lot of good that comes from wishing that I had. Each tree, each and every tree in this room is lovingly, providentially, and often painfully planted exactly where it is intended to be. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Would you grab a hold of this thing in either chapter, and would you fight the fight of faith to believe your tree is exactly where God intended to plant it? That's a hard truth this morning. Number four, both writers tell us that the trees have healthy leaves and that they bear lots of fruit, and that's precisely the point that we're going to return to. That's the major similarities. There's four of them. They kind of crisscross each other, and it's hard to know whether we're in the Psalms or in Jeremiah because they sound so much alike. But after you get through those four similarities, the psalmist and Jeremiah, they part ways on their emphasis. Psalm 1 is a very different chapter. Psalm 1 is broad and sweeping. Remember, it's the first chapter for 150 chapters of Psalms. It acts as a kind of prologue to the entire book of Psalms. It flies at 10,000 feet and it shouts to the reader, if you will listen to these words, these are words of life and the righteous person, they will build their life on them. This is your introduction to the Christian life. Jeremiah speaks these words, but he doesn't have that luxury, so to speak. Jeremiah is alone. Jeremiah in this chapter is suffering. Jeremiah is about to pray in the very next breath in verse 17. God, be not a terror to me. When's the last time you prayed that God would stop terrifying you? God, please, I beg you, I beg you, do not terrify me. That's where Jeremiah is right now. So when Jeremiah reaches for the tree metaphor in Psalm 1, he has to add two lines from his on-the-ground experience. Two lines that Psalm 1 doesn't have, but that Jeremiah 17 alone has. He says, the tree does not fear when the heat comes and is not anxious in the year of drought. You know where I'm going with this. If you and I, we grabbed a beer with Jeremiah this week, and we sat with him, and we wanted to ask him how his life was going at this point, but we kind of wanted to preface it with what we already know in the first 17 chapters, and we would kind of start by saying, hey man, I I did hear about the temple incident where you stood at the gates and you screamed at the people of Israel and how that didn't go so well and people are kind of talking behind your back. I did did hear about that, and I'm sorry. And I do know that things are kind of hot and heavy in your hometown of Anathoth where the priests that you grew up with and who had trusted you are now saying that you don't speak for God even though you say that you do which happens in verse 15. And we'd have to add, and by the way, I did actually bump into one of your brothers at the farmer's market, and he did let slip that his family still wants to kill you. Chapter 12, I'm really sorry about that. Like, how are you doing? What's going on? Give me a prayer request. What can I do for you? (laughs) Jeremiah might respond as he does in this verse, I guess if I would have to sum up my life right now, I would describe it as the year of drought. Those are the words that come to mind to describe the season that I'm in. This is the year of drought. That gives a whole new depth to this passage. Suffer or not, a trusting tree does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. God plans to bear fruit even in suffering, even in the year of drought. The tree The streams, the planting, the green leaves, the fruit, they are as true in the trenches of suffering in Jeremiah as they are on the mountaintop of worship in the book of Psalms. And you and I can be tempted to think that in the Christian life, when we experience real, true, abiding suffering, that becomes a timeout from this journey. God wants to grow us and make us look like Jesus, but now I suffer and I'm on the sidelines, and God is saying, I know how to make green leaves, and I know how to make good fruit, even in a drought, even in the heat. Did you notice that in these two verses, we haven't even said one thing about suffering, big S, suffering, like we haven't answered any existential questions about how a a sovereign, good God can cause suffering to people and how that works in his providence, we haven't answered a single question of big-ass suffering. We have hardly even answered a question in little s suffering. Like, what does this mean to you? How long is this going to last? And what is going to be left of you when it's over? In short, I have no idea what this year holds. I literally have no idea for what this year holds for a single person in this room. Today, tomorrow, next week... It may be the first day of drought in a year-long desert scarcity. I have no idea, and there's no words that I can say, trite words to a sufferer that will begin to give us a handle on what we're supposed to do next week and next month and a year from now. That's not where Jeremiah is, that's not what we hear from this passage, what we hear is is a direction for today. I don't know what you're going to do two months from now, but I have something for you to do Sunday afternoon. Today, I am a tree. Today, I am planted where I need to be. Today, I am near streams of water. And today, God is making plans for green leaves and good fruit that is going to happen today. Like in the next 15 minutes, I have the Spirit of God who lives inside of me and moves inside of me and does supernatural things. He's going to take a situation that I can't see the light of day in and he is going to bear the fruit of the Spirit. He's going to start to draw out of my hands and feet love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And when he does those things, it is going to be supernatural, absolutely supernatural. I can't muster it. I can't fake it. I can't do what I think is expected of me in a situation of suffering or what I expect other people want from me. I am a tree. I am by a stream of water. And God is going to do a miracle. Let's pray for that.